Romans 9 proves Calvinism. I mean, what could be clearer? Paul straightforwardly teaches individual, sovereign, unconditional election to salvation in eternity past. How much clearer does it get? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You see, it's right there in black and white. But the Armenian is going to say, well, not so fast. You just don't understand Paul's bigger argument. You don't see the bigger picture. You don't see what he's up to. If the straightforward argument was really Paul's point, then why does he spend three chapters explaining it in such exhaustive detail? Well, the answer is there's a very good reason. And we're going to show you why. A straightforward reading of the text is right, and that means Calvinism is right, and that means Calvinism is nothing more than biblical Christianity, plain and simple. You stay tuned with us on Sinners and Saints as we tackle individual election from Romans 9. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an Edge. Hey, thanks for joining us today on Sinners and Saints. And today we're back again on our topic of Calvinism. We told you that we're going to take on a new series here, just sort of going over the basic uh, outline of Calvinism with respect to issues such as individual election and uh, human choice and limited atonement, things like that. And one reason why we're bringing this up is because, as we said last time, we are going to be uh, interacting with a book called Why I'm Not a Calvinist, written by Jerry Walls and Joseph Dongel. They have taken the time to offer a contemporary a refutation of Calvinism as they understand it. They're setting forth the Arminian perspective. And we believe because the book has been written, it's out there in most of your major uh, bookstores on the shelves. People are reading it. Uh, it's a topic for discussion that it's time that uh, we give a Calvinist answer to this and say why we're not Arminians. And the principal reason why we're not Arminians is because the Bible is Calvinistic. Yeah, the Bible is Calvinistic. Text after text defends and sets forth the biblical truth about salvation, the biblical truth about a sovereign electing God, and the biblical truth about the fact that unless God had chosen you as an individual from eternity past, you wouldn't be getting anywhere near salvation. One of the most important passages in the Bible to defend this great truth of sovereign individual unconditional election by God is Romans chapter 9. Very important passage here, and obviously one that is going to be uh, disputed by the Armenians because they have to answer it. Elections in the Bible, they know that, and they have to answer it. And so today we're going to be taking on uh, basically laying out the proper interpretation of this passage, and the next time we're going to come back again, circle back through uh, the same territory, but try to show you where the objections are going to come from and then uh, refute those. Yeah, everybody agrees that Romans 9 is central to this whole debate between the Calvinists and the Arminians. I just want to read you a little bit from what Walls is writing here. He said, these verses, and uh, specifically he's talking about 9, 11 through 12, 16, 18, and 21, but, but chapter 9 on the whole. These verses form the most contested territory of the Calvinist-Arminian dispute. They appear to support directly the Calvinist teaching of an individual, unconditional election to salvation and to damnation. That's an interesting quote. They appear until 
they say, well, now watch my smokescreen and show you how that's not really what it's saying, even though it's painfully obvious. Right, and he asks sort of facetiously, what could be clearer than these straightforward declarations that God has mercy on whomever he wills, and that human beings are but clay in his hands, and that the individual fates of Jacob and Esau were divinely determined without any consideration of their future responses to God. So there's no argument between the Calvinists and the Arminians about the, A, appearance of Romans 9 to teach individual election, unconditional election, or that this is a very central passage in our understanding uh, of salvation. The question is whether or not the Calvinists or the Arminians are correct. Well, and, and the fact of the matter is, as we've already indicated, the Calvinists are correct. We could say that uh, not out of... Uh, arrogance or pride, but we can say that emphatically because the Bible teaches it. And it's very interesting how Paul dig, gets us into this argument of, of individual election. If you go back to Romans 9, I hope you have your Bibles handy because we're going to be interacting with a number of verses here. It's going to be most helpful for you to, in order to grasp the argument to have your Bible open. But there's a very important question that Paul uses to probe this issue. Or not so much a question, but it's a statement in verse 6, uh, Romans 9, where he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. You can see that is the objection. That's, that's in the backdrop here, and that's why the Apostle Paul is taking it on. It's somebody saying, well, if this is true, what you're saying about justification by faith alone, the stuff he's been talking about then, then uh, somehow uh, God's word has failed to Israel. Okay, so the first thing that we want to show you here is that the occasion... For the Apostle Paul to teach the doctrine of election is his defense of a charge that's levied against him, which is that your teaching, Paul, implies that God's word has failed. How do we get there? Well, begin at verse 1. Think about what the Apostle Paul is saying. He said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Something is tearing the Apostle Paul up alive. He is saddened and frustrated, and he's saddened and frustrated, and he can't even hardly express it, that his blood brothers, his fellow national Jews, are remaining in the kind of unbelief that he once lived in himself. He loves these people. He goes on to talk about them. They're my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they're my brothers, they're Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Them are the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. And it's tearing Paul up alive, so much so that he speaks in very, really shocking terms. He says, I could wish that I myself were cut off from Christ and cursed for the sake of these my brothers, who are, at this point at least, unbelieving. So the Apostle Paul has this terrible anguish because he is preaching and he believes very clearly that if the Jews that he knows do not put their faith and trust in Christ, then they will be cursed. Here's where the objection comes in. Because any Jew who heard Paul saying that some Israelites would be damned would immediately say to him, Paul, what about God's promise to Abraham? Didn't God promise Abraham that his line would be blessed? And if I am of the line of Abraham, then I will be glorified someday, and it's impossible for me to be cursed. 
And what about all the prophecies in the Old Testament that even when Israel sinned, talked about God being merciful to them and gracious to them and bringing them back into the land and restoring them and one day glorifying them in the great resurrection. What about that, Paul? Are you saying that God's promises have failed? That's the objection that's coming against Paul. Now, what we want to show you is that Paul's answer to that objection is the doctrine of election. Yeah, that, that's what he pulls out next, because when he, he states the objection, he states the issue that the, the Word of God hasn't failed, he immediately uh, brings in supporting evidence to back up his claim. He says, no, God's Word did not fail to Israel or to Abraham, because then he goes on to say, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he's going to get into the issue of, well, just because you were a part of the the ancient uh, covenant that God made with Abraham, you were a physical descendant of his, did not necessarily prove and did not necessarily guarantee you a place in the eternal kingdom. And he and he gives us a case in point immediately. He says it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be called, and then he gets into a little bit of the history of the patriarchs. Yeah, so why does he bring up Isaac? He brings up Isaac because Isaac is a particular son of Abraham in the flesh that God has decided to place his favor on, as opposed to Ishmael. Ishmael, the other son of Abraham, who was not considered by God to be part of the line of promise. So think about Paul's answer to the objection. He says, well, yeah, you want to look at the promise of Abraham, and yes, you want to recognize that whoever God really promised through Abraham and through all of his Old Testament prophets who talked about Israel being restored, whoever God promised, they will be glorified. But what you misunderstand is that those promises never really referred to every individual national Israelite. Notice what Paul doesn't say to this objection. Paul doesn't say, oh, well, you misunderstood. He kind of makes the promise to Abraham, and all that really means is he'll do his part, and everybody else has to do their part. God shows his grace, and you have to add in your faith, and that equals salvation, and that's how people will get into glory. Paul doesn't say that. Paul assumes that they have properly understood the nature of a promise, which is if God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. What they have misunderstood is who are the objects, the recipients of that promise. And in this case, it is not every individual national Israelite. It happens to be certain ones of that national line. Now, the interesting thing here is that Paul already, by saying that, is going to anticipate an objection, because if you appeal to Isaac, somebody's going to say, then, well, it's not really fair game to appeal to the case of Isaac and Ishmael, because everybody knows that Ishmael is the offspring of Hagar, and really the promise was that uh, through Sarah, and in Abraham's seed through Sarah, would the promise come. So they're saying that that's uh, that's dirty pool, Paul, to say that Isaac is a good illustration of this. So what does he do? What he does is verse 10 says, fine, you're not going to accept that. I'll give you another example. I'm going to put forward two solid rock solid bloodstock Jews that you cannot distinguish in any way in terms of their privilege in the covenant line and show you that God distinguishes between the sons of Israel. Not all of them had the promise made to them. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
See, they come from the good line. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So fine, if you want to you know, say, oh, there's something less Israelite about Ishmael or less of the promised line about Ishmael as opposed to Isaac, you can't say that in any way whatsoever about Jacob and Esau. Now remember why he's saying this. He's defending the accusation that if some Jews will be condemned, which is what he's preaching, that if you're preaching that, Paul, then God's promises have failed. And Paul doesn't say, no, God didn't really promise. He says, no, God did promise, but the promise was only made to particular Israelites within the broader Israelite community. Yeah, basically all Paul is saying is, you know, you can't charge me uh, with somehow creating a God who's a monster who breaks his promises, because if you had actually been reading your Bible, you could have seen this for yourself. It's very clear. If you go back to, to the, the narratives of the patriarchs, you see there that God has, is already making discriminating choices among uh, those who were actual blood descendants of Abraham. But don't miss what's plain in the text here, okay? Uh, look at what it says. Paul is clearly saying that there is such a thing as a sovereign, individual, unconditional election. Verse 11 says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or might stand. I mean, there's Calvinism in black and white. You don't have to uh, scratch below the surface to find it. It's straightforward. It's on the surface of the text. It's under the surface of the text. It's above the text. It's everywhere here. Paul is appealing to the doctrine of election to help uh, make his argument here. God's word didn't fail. Now, what's one of the ways you know that we're reading that section or the part that we've come to uh, so far correctly? Well, it's verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? The only way that objection makes any sense, and this is very important for us to understand when we're reading Romans 9, the only way that objection makes any sense is if the Apostle Paul has just taught the idea of sovereign election. No other explanation of the import of Romans chapter 9 can be read coherently along with verse 14. In other words, the only reason why anybody could say, even come up with the possibility, the idea, the objection, that God is unjust, is if exactly he is choosing between some and others who are equally involved in ruin and who both deserve damnation. Let me just give you an example of how some Arminians will interpret you know, the main point of chapter 9. Some of them will say, well, yeah, God chooses them, but his choice was based on what he saw that they would do before they ever came into the world, or what he saw that they would choose, whether or not they would accept Jesus or accept the promises of Jesus in the case of Jacob and Esau. Well, the problem with that is, if that was what Paul was teaching, why would anybody object that God is unjust? I mean, if after all, God's choice is based on what they would have chosen— then how does it make God unjust at all? Nobody in their right mind could charge God with injustice for that. Or if, as some other uh, Arminians do, and it seems to me to be, although he's not always clear about it, Walls tries to take this line. If all Paul's talking about here is the fact that God chose to bring Jesus Christ through a particular part of the line of Israel— 
Why would anybody charge God with injustice for doing that? I mean, what does it matter if God sends Jesus Christ through any Jew or any Gentile that ever lived, as long as, as the Arminians claim, everybody has a fair shake, a fair shot at Jesus? That's no reason to charge God with injustice. The only possible way to understand this objection is to understand that what Paul has taught before this is that God sovereignly discriminates, he righteously discriminates to save some and leave others to be damned. Now, it's interesting how Paul answers the question that he himself poses. As he says in verse 14, is there any injustice on God's part? And what, what's his answer? No, he appeals to Exodus 33 in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So basically he answers his own question by appealing to this Exodus 33 narrative, which is, um, it brings another level of complication into the passage. But one of the things that you need to see here in order to grasp what Paul is doing with his argument is Israel has sinned against God by creating uh, the golden calves. They are uh, engaging in false worship and abominable practices, and God's ready to take them all out. And God's response to Moses is in Exodus 33.1, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up. And uh, he's basically saying, You just go on into the land of Canaan without me. I'm going to leave you. Now, that's interesting that God is basically saying at this point that genealogical succession to Abraham doesn't make any difference. He's ready to wipe all these stiff-necked, hard-hearted Israelites. He's ready to wipe them out and consume them in his wrath right there. But Moses appeals to him in prayer, and one of the responses that God gets uh, gives to, to Moses is the quotation you have in Exodus uh, 33, I, I will... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. In other words, God's revealing his name. And what he's going to do is he is going to choose uh, people whom he's going to sovereignly show mercy to. And it's up to him. He could wipe them all out in his wrath. He could wipe out all sinners out in his wrath. But the, the thrust of the argument here is he doesn't do that. He has mercy on some, but he has mercy on the ones he will choose, not mercy on the ones who he thinks are going to make good use of uh, his invitations to the gospel. That's exactly right. Look at it in verse 16. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So basically, the point is, you've got all of these wicked, rebellious Israelites. In the broader context, you have all these wicked, rebellious Egyptians. And why does God decide to have mercy on some and not others? Because of his mercy toward the ones that he has decided to show compassion and mercy to. It has nothing to do with any of their deserving or working to make it happen. And in fact, this is further confirmed in the quote that comes in verse 17, that uh, the scripture says to Pharaoh, this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, this is a fascinating quote again, and you've got to think about the context of where this comes from. This is in the course of uh, Exodus 9. And you've been seeing the plagues being poured out on the Egyptian people, and the Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart against the Lord. Let me just read you a section there from Exodus 9. This is verse 12. The Lord hardens the heart of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh does not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses and said it would happen. And verse 13. Then the Lord says to Moses, You get up early in the morning, and you go before Pharaoh, and you say to him, This is what the Lord says, the God of the Hebrews. You let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself 
and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, this is the key verse here, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with the pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, what is he telling Pharaoh? At the point after which here he had sent the boils on all of his magicians and the magicians are just confused. They don't know what to do. They recognize that this is not illusion. This is the finger of God cursing their own people. What does he come to Pharaoh and say? He says, I just want you to know, Pharaoh, that if I wanted to, and as you deserve, I could have wiped you off the face of the earth a long time ago. In fact, the only reason why I haven't is because I've been hardening your heart even further in order to raise you up so that I might cut you down in other ways in order to display my power in you. Think about that for a minute. God comes to people, the fallen sinful human race, and to some of them, he shows mercy and compassion and makes them alive in Christ and saves them. And to others of them, he hardens their heart even further. And he pours out in their lives and ultimately in eternity the kind of condemnation that they had coming already anyhow. This is the kind of God that we serve. God chooses to save some and he chooses to pass over others unto their own condemnation. Now that's going to cause another question to come up, which you see here in verse 19. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? You see, the objector is going to say now, well, if just God's sovereign over everything and he elects and sovereignly chooses some people to be in and some people to be out, then Pharaoh's just doing what God ordained that he would do. Pharaoh's doing what God makes him do. That's, that's a very uh, important issue to take up because often Calvinism is accused of this, okay? And this is where we have to clarify something. Okay, hold on, John. Before you go there, because I, I want to make this point again. If we do not read Romans 9 teaching individual election as Pastor John just described, then again, this objection makes no sense. I just have to bring this up. Because often we're accused of reading this passage inconsistently or just taking one verse here and one verse there, which this is why we're doing this show, to take you through verse by verse in Romans 9, basically. But what you have to understand is all of the proposed interpretations, Arminian or otherwise, interpretations of Romans 9, that try to get around the clear teaching that God is choosing some and not others, can't make any real sense out of this objection. Why would anybody else object how can God still find fault for who can resist his will? The only way somebody could object that is if Paul's teaching election. If it's election based on foreknowledge, which the Arminians believe, then why would anybody object? Yeah, because Pharaoh would have chose his own destiny in the sense. Yeah, it would have nothing to do with yeah, God. Exactly. There would be no there would be nothing here to, to find fault with God about or Calvinism, okay? And so you have to answer the question, verse 19, well, it just sounds like then if your sovereign election theology is correct, then what you're basically saying is that God made Pharaoh reject him. After all, doesn't this say he hardened his heart? Now, look at how Paul answers this. He says in verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? A little bit of a smack down there verbally. And then it says, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me thus? Has not the potter 
uh, power over the clay to make the same lump, one vessel for uh, honored use and the other for dishonored use. And what I want to say here, one of the things that I want to make clear on this is that Calvinism does not teach that God positively creates evil in the heart of people to resist him. And that's one thing you have to understand in terms of the context as Paul quotes this episode uh, from Pharaoh and God hardening Pharaoh. You have to remember that on numerous occasions in the book of Exodus, before uh, you have this quotation lifted out of its context in Exodus 9, God did wondrous works, and what Exodus says uh, time after time after time, is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It's not, after, it's not until after numerous displays of sovereign power, which was designed to call Pharaoh to repentance, that God finally uh, gives Pharaoh over to his hardness. And the point of that is, is that Pharaoh belongs to the fallen human race. And this is how it's important for us to understand this analogy that Paul's making between the potter and the clay and our condition as sinners. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, God comes to the human race, which is fallen in our first father, Adam. And he sees that race from even before the time we were created. He sees that we have freely rebelled against him and forfeited any right to be blessed by God. And he says, to some of that lump, I will have mercy and compassion on you. And to the rest of the lump, as in this specific case here, Pharaoh, he says, I will harden your heart even further as your life is played out in history and I will pour my condemnation out on you. This lump is not a good lump. This is the fallen, sinful lump of human clay and God decides to save some of it and in his justice decides to punish the rest of it. There's no injustice in God's part then, because basically the situation is that all people are equally fallen, equally plunged into their own sin, and on their way to condemnation. And the point of it is, if God sovereignly permits Pharaoh to continue to harden himself and to turn against him, and yet on the other hand, God sovereignly, out of his free choice, decides to have mercy on some of those, uh, on some of that lump of clay, then we have no business as uh, fallen sinful clay pots to, to object to God and shake our fist at him and say, well, why are you doing this? That's what Paul's basically saying. Don't you dare, don't you dare shake your fist into uh, the majestic, transcendent face of God because you, in your sinfulness, in your hardened heart and your hardened condition, object to the fact that God is doing what he will with his own. Okay, so don't lose the forest for the trees. The basic, obvious, clear teaching of Romans 9 through 21, which is as far as we've gotten today, is that Paul is answering the objection, if you're teaching, Paul, that some Jews through unbelief are going to be condemned if they persist in unbelief, then you're saying that some Jews will actually die and be cursed and condemned, which is contrary to God's promise, say to Abraham, when he said, all of Abraham's descendants will be blessed. And Paul says, no, actually, you got one thing right, which is that God promised that he would save every single individual members of a particular group. But I got news for you. It's not every single individual national Israelite. It's an elect group out of the Jews 
and also out of the Gentiles of the world, that is the group to whom God promised he would bring to faith in Christ, he would save them, he would make sure that he would conquer their sins. They're no better or different than any of the ones that God has passed over to be condemned and that in history he has hardened their hearts even further. That is their just punishment. But God righteously discriminates between men, women, and children who are equally involved in ruin. That's what grace is that he comes to us and saves his elect people because he loves them. So there you have it. Calvinism's in the text. It's there in black and white. You don't have to tease it out through smoke and mirrors exegesis. So we want you to keep thinking through the things that we've been talking about. Thanks for joining us on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. 